Second Peter chapter one. Let's stand at this time. Uh, we're going to read um, the first ten verses in Second Peter chapter one. Simon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to them that have obtained like precious faith with us through the righteousness of God and our Savior Jesus Christ. Just this is not my message this morning, but let's just pause on those three words: like precious faith. What is something precious? It's something that's of immense value, correct? You think about how precious our faith is. Now, everyone has faith in something. They really do. Even the atheists and the agnostics have faith in something. Most of them are humanists. Most of them believe in the uh, the hypothesis i don't even give it the credit of being called a theory most of them will believe in the hypothesis of evolution and that takes a ton of faith but the muslims have faith do they not the buddhists have faith the hindus have faith all of the sects and cults have faith they do not have precious faith Because regardless of how dear and near they hold it to their hearts, it doesn't get them in a right relationship with God. It doesn't give them peace with God. It doesn't give them forgiveness of sins. It doesn't keep them out of hell when they die and get them to heaven in eternity. Our faith is precious, not because of the fact that we have it, but because of what it does for us. And so you should remember that this morning. If you do not have any money in the bank, say, I at least have precious faith which they cannot take away from me. Verse 2. Grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, according as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness, through the knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and virtue, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. And beside this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, and to knowledge temperance, and to temperance, patience, and to patience, godliness, and to godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, charity. For if these things be in you and abound, they make you that ye shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But he that lacketh these things is blind and cannot see afar off. And hath forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. He that lacketh these things is blind. He cannot see afar off. He can't see forwards. But then it says also he's forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. He can't see forwards. He can't think backwards. Which means that the person who lacks those things is confined to one dimension of time and that is right here right now 
That's all they're interested in. And so consequently, if all you are interested in is the right here and right now, it means that you're not looking to the future. You aren't thinking back to the past when God forgave you from your sins. In that sense, you're like Esau. And the Bible says that he was profane. Verse 10. Wherefore, the rather, brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure. And notice what the end of the verse says. For if ye do these things, ye shall never fall. If ye do these things, ye shall never fall. And that's what I'm going to preach to you on this morning on the topic of the fall-proof Christian. Not foolproof but the fall-proof Christian. Let's have a word of prayer, and then you may be seated. Heavenly Father, I ask at this time for your blessing upon the preaching of the Word of God. Lord, we live in a day and age where we see many Christians falling away and departing the faith. Lord, you said it was going to happen. Lord, may it not happen to any person here today. And I ask for your blessing upon the preaching time now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, you may be seated now. Fall proof. If ye do these things, ye shall never fall. I, uh, I like to run. Most of you here know that. Most of you know that I love to run. Uh, and so many people say so many things. Uh, I've heard them all before. Uh, I'm currently training, uh, with a goal towards running a, a big race in September. Uh, actually two months from today, September 16 and 17. Um, and that's a hundred mile race in the mountains. And the first thing that most people say is, oh, I wouldn't even like to drive that far. Um, and yeah, I, I've heard that one before. And people say, I, I don't like running. Um, and there's a lot of reasons for that. And, and, and some people say, I can't run. And in some cases they truly can't. And in some cases they truly should start trying. Um, I think, you know, as a, as a nation, we'd be more healthy if people would get off the couch and if say, oh, but you can hurt your knees and your ankles. You can do a whole lot more harm sitting on the couch. I promise you. (laughs) Um, and so uh, that's what I, that's what I like to do. Uh, but I don't like to run around on the streets and the roads. I do that out of necessity. Um, tomorrow morning I'll get up fairly early and I'll probably run around my neighborhood and run a few miles around my neighborhood because I don't always have time to get out to the woods where I would rather be. But those of you who live and know what trails are like in, in North Carolina know that trails around here are usually covered with rocks and roots. <laughs> And you know what we say about the trails around here? Because people, you want to you get out there and you want to enjoy the views. Oh, it's so pretty out here. We say, look up, fall down. Because you have to watch where you're going. Because there's roots and rocks and potholes and obstacles everywhere you go around here. Not everywhere in the country is like that. Um, when I lived out um, in the Midwest in Kansas City, I was back there for work this week on Monday through Wednesday. Um, and uh, the trails out there, I mean, they're a little, they're a little rough, but they're, they're nothing like the roughness of East Coast trails. Uh, they call um, long distance runners, they call it um, the Beast Coast. They don't call it East Coast, um, and that's because all of those people that live out west, they, they, they're scared of the humidity and nastiness of summer here on the East Coast. We're, but we're tough; we can handle this, right? 
Us North Carolina people. We're tough. We can handle this, right? North Carolina people. Yes, we, we are tough. We can handle this. Um, but it does get hot and it gets humid. Um, and if you look up, you fall down. I know something. I know something as a runner and, and I'm preaching this in, I'm telling you this story in the context of you might say today, well, I'm a good, strong Christian and I would never fall. Can I tell you something about falling? I've done it dozens of times on the trail. And you know what I know about falling? Five seconds before you fall, you weren't expecting to. That's what I know. Okay. Uh, now I know every now and then uh, you get some fatigue, you get a bit lazy, you might roll your ankle a little bit, you hit a little root that you didn't see and you think, ooh, huh. uh, and, and sometimes that does lead up to falling but often everything's going great, you're running along, everything's fine and all of a sudden you're lying down lick, licking dust off the ground looking down to see how much damage you've done when you fell. People don't expect to fall. But people are falling, are they not? Christians are falling, are they not? Preachers are falling all the time, are they not? Missionaries are falling all the time. And it's not just the prominent people standing in the pulpit. Members of congregations are falling. Uh, We see Christian parents and grandparents who are watching it happen in their children and in their grandchildren. And we're seeing it happen on an unprecedented scale. It... In some ways, it should not be a surprise. Because Second Thessalonians told us that leading up to the Lord's return, that that is exactly what would happen. I'll read to you the verse in Second Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 3. It says, Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come, except there come a falling away first. Now I don't know what circles you grew up in. Amongst uh, Baptists and amongst independent Baptists, there are there's a lot of different quote-unquote flavors of us, right? There's a lot of different camps among us. Some of them are the more dynamic uh, people. We might call them the Hayman type. You know what I mean by those? The Hayman brother, uh, and they're the real. Uh, they're known in some circles as hackers. Um, and they're really loud and they're really dynamic and, and at some of those churches, and I'm not being critical, I'm just telling you how it is, at some of those churches, every single Sunday morning is going to be a gospel message with an invitation to salvation and that's all they're ever going to get on a Sunday morning. There are other churches that are very different than that. Some of them are more formal, still Bible-believing people, but very formal, very ritualistic uh, and then there are some that are just, you know, they're very quiet and they're very meek and they're very mild. We're all different. Okay, and it's okay to be different. It really is. If you look at the apostles that Jesus chose, I, I would have chosen, I would have agreed with him on 11 out of 12 of them. <laughs> um, but they were very, very different people from each other, from different backgrounds and different walks of life. God can use you in what background and different walk of life that you are from. But amongst uh, amongst my crowd, my circles that I grew up in, we looked at that passage in Second Thessalonians chapter 2 and where it says that there would come a falling away first. My crowd that I grew up in, we were the very, and, and I'm not being against this, I'm for this, we were the very, very strong King James crowd. 
And, and so I was trained with this mindset that when it said falling away, I was trained that the only thing that that meant was a falling away from belief in the King James Bible. Now there is a falling away from belief in the King James Bible. But 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 3 didn't confine it to that. There's a falling away from a lot of other things as well. There's a falling away from godliness. There's a falling away from holiness. There's a falling away from right standards. There's a falling away uh, from right music in the church. And I've already touched on that briefly this morning. There are people, you know, uh, and I'm not saying this to hurt anyone, to dent anyone's fender here this morning, but marriages are, what do the people say? They're falling apart. Amongst God's people, amongst saved people, there is a Christian research organization by the name of Barna. I'm not sure if anyone's heard of the Barna group. You know what the Barna group have come to the conclusion? The divorce rate amongst independent Baptists bears no statistical difference than the divorce rate amongst unsaved people. No statistical difference. You say, what does that mean? Fancy term. It means plus or minus 2%. It's basically a wash. Why is that? We know what the Bible says. It says what God hath put together, let no man put asunder. And yet we're seeing these falling aways in so many different ways. And a lot of good people, a lot of really good people who think, well, I I don't think it's going to happen to me. Be cautious of that. Okay, be mighty, mighty cautious of I don't think it's going to happen to me. Like I said, when you're on the trails, five seconds before you fall, you think you're not going to. Yes, the Bible even tells us, let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. But we have good people who are worried about their children and they're worried about their grandchildren because they see so many other people going astray and going haywire. And they look at it and they think, those parents who have tears in their eyes today because their children have gone astray, those parents raise their children pretty much the same way I raise my children. And if there was nothing that they could do to stop their children from falling, there must be nothing I can do to stop. And you know what we do? We adopt a negative, pessimistic, fatalistic point of view. And we say, the world is basically going to hell in a handbasket and there's nothing I can do to stop it. That isn't true read the end of verse 10 again it says if ye do these things ye shall never fall there are things that can be done to prevent ourselves and our families and our young ones and our loved ones and our church members there are things that we can do to stop them from falling and it's not a method And it's not a formula. And I'll not say, this method will guarantee this. Or here are the steps. That sort of thing makes me cringe. Because when we say that it's a method or a formula. And it becomes follow the bouncing ball. We just get into a rut of a ritual. And that's a very dangerous thing as well. I call this a course of action to diligently follow a series of instructions given to us in the Word of God. And and it comes with a rather stunning absolute statement. If ye do these things, ye shall never fall. I'm very confident in this. 
I'm very confident that no fallen Christian is ever going to come up to me and say, I did everything that Second Peter chapter 1 said I should do and I still fell. I don't believe it. And if, if you do want to say that, don't take it up with me. I didn't write Second Peter chapter 1. I just preach it from the man who did write it and he's God Almighty. It's his word, it's his book, and the statement, if you do these things, you shall never fall, it's a statement that came from him, not me. Now there's a huge difference from the get-go today, turn to Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 24, there is a huge difference between a minor fall and a permanent fall. There really is. Proverbs chapter 24 And verse 16. For a just man falleth seven times. Let's just pause there. Remember Second Peter chapter 1. If you do these things you shall never fall. And now it says a just man. He's a good man, is he? Isn't he not? He's a just man. It says a just man falleth seven times. Well, I thought he'd never fall. Oh, contradiction in the Bible. No. A just man falleth seven times and riseth up again. There's the key thing. There's a big difference between a minor fall and a permanent fall. A just man falleth seven times and riseth up again. Turn to Psalm 37. This should be an encouragement to some of you this morning. Some of you this morning, you might say, Oh, I've fallen heaps and I'm trying to be a good Christian. What do you mean I'll never fall? You're still in the race, aren't you? You're still here this morning, aren't you? You've dusted yourself off, you picked yourself back up and you press on. Psalm 37 verse 23. The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord and he delighteth in his way. Though he fall, he shall not be utterly cast down for the Lord upholdeth him with his hand. He's a good man. He's a good man. He goes in the direction ordered by the Lord. He delights in the Lord's way, but then it says, though he fall. But he won't be utterly cast down. The Lord sets him up again so that he will never fall permanently. May I say to you this morning that that should be our goal. Our goal should be... uh, Now, I don't like to fall on the trails... I don't try to fall on the trails. I don't go out and run and say, well, I'm probably going to fall at some stage today, so I may as well get it over and done with and do it on purpose. I don't do that. That would be dumb. Okay? We wouldn't do it intentionally. We want to prevent it for as long as we can. We want it to happen as infrequently as 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 possible. But when it does happen, what do we do? We get up and we go again. I do something strange. Because I am strange and most of you have figured that out. When I nearly fall, if I hit a stone that I didn't see or a rock or a root or something like that, uh, and I might roll my ankle and nearly fall and manage to pick myself up and keep going, I'm out in the woods. I'm usually by myself. Because everyone else is at home, sitting on the couch, watching TV, whatever. Um, I'm usually out there. But you know what I do when I nearly fall down? I loudly, out in the woods, I call out loudly, thank you, Lord. 
on the off chance that maybe someone is within earshot, wondering why a guy that nearly fell over is loudly thanking the Lord. Because a lot of people who aren't Christians wouldn't say thank you Lord when they nearly fell over. Something else had come out of their mouth. Now that's not the strange bit. The strange bit is when I do fall down, I'll be laying there on the ground and I'll also call out, thank you, Lord. You say, why? Because I'm still conscious. I'm still conscious. And then the second thing I'll do is I'll start looking around to try and figure out, have I hurt myself badly or not? And if I haven't, then I'll say again, thank you, Lord. Now I might be bleeding a little bit or dinged up or bruised a little bit. But you know what the Bible says? In everything, give thanks. And we should be thankful people. Now, once upon a few years ago, um, about two years ago now, uh, it was around this time of year, I was out in Idaho running a, a race there. Um, yesterday was this year's version of it, the McCall Trail Running McClassic. Um, and it's a the race director, he likes to, pang, uh, to pack as much uh, difficulty into the race distance as possible. And so when they call it the Trail Running McClassic, oh, it's a classic. And um, they held it two years ago when I ran it. It was only marathon distance. It was actually a bit longer than that. It was about 30 miles, but they called it as marathon distance. Uh, but it was up and down and up and down and up and down a ski mountain. Uh, and it was pretty rough. And there were some of the trails. There were places where the trail was. There was no trail. Uh, and it was just straight up. And uh, at one point during the race, I, I fell, almost fell off the side of the mountain. And yes, it was very, very steep. If I'd fallen, the consequences were a little, a little higher than what ended up happening. But as I lay there on the side of the mountain, I noticed my right foot was bent at about right angles, and I thought, I've snapped my leg. And I was in agony. Not from my ankle, but my calf muscle cramped at the same moment. And I'm looking down at a calf muscle that's knotted up, and I'm like, ooh... And then I'll look at my foot and I'll, ooh, I thought, which one do I deal with first? Well, I gotta get rid of the cramp first. So I'm stretching my leg as best as I can, straightening it out, and eventually after probably, everything happens slowly when you're in pain. It was probably 10 seconds, but it feels like two minutes. It was probably 10 seconds and I got rid of that cramp, and I thought, oh, that foot's not good. I've broken my leg for sure. So I thought, I gotta straighten it out at least. So I leaned down and I grabbed a hold of it, and then I realized, I don't think the bone's broken. So I thought, maybe it's dislocated. So I grabbed a hold of it and, went, eh, and it went back in. And I'm like, oh, good. And I, it took me a few seconds longer to actually stand up again because every time I tried to stand up, the cramp started trying to come back. I had my hiking poles with me and so I got my poles out and I started hobbling along. And you know what I did? You should have figured it out by now. I said, thank you, Lord. You say he dislocated my ankle. Yeah, but... It, I put it back in again. I got something to be thankful for. And I walked and I walked and I walked for about four miles and it got to the point eventually where the pain started going away and because I'd been walking for a while, the cramp had gone away and so I started sort of slowly running. And it's getting on towards sunset and then I came across another guy. turns out his name was Ben as well. (laughs) You know what I found? I found someone that was going slower than me. (laughs) I wasn't dead last in the race anymore. And I, I went along with this guy for a while and 
we were a couple of miles out from an aid station where there was an opportunity to drop out of the race. And I said to him, I said, we got time. We can still finish this race in time. And he said, oh, I'm done. I, I, I'm, I'm dropping out. And he did. He dropped out. And I said, well, I said, I dislocated my ankle back there, but I'm thinking I'm going to keep going. I'm going to, I'm crazy enough to try anything. So I kept on going. And, um, you know what I did? I finished. Can I tell you something else about how I finished that race? I finished dead last. But the other guy that didn't dislocate his ankle, he didn't finish at all. He quit and gave up. And a just man falleth seven times and riseth up again, but the wicked shall fall into mischief. And a good man, though he fall, he shall not be utterly cast down. The big difference between a minor fall and a permanent fall. Uh, a guy by the name of Dave Mackey. Dave Mackey was one of the best 100-mile runners uh, in the whole nation. He lived in Leadville, Colorado. Um, some, anyone heard of Leadville, Colorado? It's real mountain country up there. It's serious business. Um, Dave Mackey was uh, doing what's called scrambling, which is kind of like going up the side of the mountain. It's not quite rock climbing. You don't need ropes to do it. But he was scrambling one day up a waterfall in Colorado and it was a route that he regularly took to train for hard mountain races and he climbed up onto a boulder and went to push off of this boulder to continue climbing up the waterfall when the boulder slipped. The boulder weighed about 2,000 pounds, they estimated. And when the boulder slipped, Dave Mackey fell. He fell in front of the boulder, then the boulder fell on him. It hit his leg and broke both tibia and fibula in his leg. He had to be rescued by a helicopter. Uh, I've seen video footage of the rescue. Some, some rescuers went up there with video cameras and I've seen the video footage of it and it's just not a pretty sight. I won't give you all of the long story, but for the next 18 months or so, they tried over and over and over again with more than a dozen surgeries. They tried to rescue his leg. And long story short, eventually one day he had to, he held a party to say goodbye to his leg as they amputated his leg from him. You say that was the end of the road for Dave Mackey, right? Nope. Two years later he was back at Leadville and with the aid of a prosthetic carbon fiber blade with one full leg and a half a good leg and a prosthetic blade ran 100 miles of Leadville and Colorado. You say, what is that? Inspirational story. Yes, it is. There is a difference between a minor fall and a permanent fall as a Christian. And you'll be amazed what you can do. You say, I've made a mess of my life. Get back up again and just try. What do we need to do to prevent falling? I've watched an entire generation of young Christians being raised with what appeared to be a good, strong Christian faith, but not much more. Uh, back in Second Peter, Second Peter chapter one, we make the mistake sometimes of thinking all we have to do is get our children to trust in Jesus, and then everything is going to be fine. No. When we get our children to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior, that deals with eternity. They are sealed until the day of redemption. They cannot lose salvation. 
But if we take our foot off the gas with our young people the day they get saved, you're setting them up for failure and falling as Christians. It says here in verse 5, 2 Peter 1 verse 5, we need to give all diligence and we need to add to our faith. Before we even get to it, we need to add to our faith. Do you get that? Add to your faith. What does faith do? Faith in the Lord Jesus Christ saves your soul for eternity, correct? Faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior changes nothing about your life right here, right now. It doesn't. Faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior will not keep your young child from turning into a drunkard. It won't. They'll be a saved drunkard if you're not careful. Faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior will not prevent your child from becoming a fornicator or an adulterer. It won't. It won't prevent them from becoming a gambler. It won't prevent them from being lazy. It won't prevent them from being a habitual liar. You say, am I suggesting nasty things about your children? I'm suggesting your children have human nature as bad as any other person on God's green earth. And we're going to need to add to their faith. And the very first thing that the Bible says, and this is probably the only one we'll get to this morning, and then we'll get to the rest of them this evening, and they'll move quicker. Add to your faith virtue. God wants us to add virtue to our lives, which is great. Say, so, oh yes, we need to have virtue. That's what we want. Virtuous young people, right? How many of you agree? It's right there in the Bible. That's what we need. We need our young people to have virtue. And people go, oh, amen, that's good. That's fantastic. That's great. I, I don't know what virtue means, but it sounds good. How are we going to add to our faith virtue if we don't even know what the word means? Um, and you can go to the dictionary, and the dictionary is not really the answer. Sometimes the dictionary is just not good enough to explain what something is. You need to let the Bible explain things for itself. Now, some of the men uh, were at a um, men's prayer meeting over at, um, I've forgotten the name of it, the, but the church just across town where we, we went there recently. Northmont, yeah, they're good people over there at Northmont. They're my friends, I just don't remember who they are. Uh, that, that's just how I am, you, you people know that. We were over at Northmont and I, I taught on this topic of, of virtue. Uh, so you guys, I'm sorry, you heard it before, but the rest of them haven't. But you guys that were at Northmont, I'm going to give you something that I didn't give them because I ran out of time. Um, you guys that have heard this before, just keep quiet. Don't tell your wives, don't tell your kids the answer to this. For those of you who haven't heard this before, how many times does the word virtue, virtuous, or virtuously get used in the entire Bible? Anyone want to have anyone want to have a guess? How many times virtue gets mentioned in the Bible? Have a guess. Yes, you, Austin. You guess. Guess a number. Three. It's more than three. He's got the ball rolling. Naomi. How many times the word virtue get used in the Bible? It's more than 10, but you're pretty close. Good guess. Oh, yes. Five, zero, 50? Okay, it's, it's between 10 and 50. It's less than 50, but more than 10. Come on, people. Yes. Less than 20. Between 20 and 10, 10 and 20. We're between 10 and 20 now. It's between 10 and a dozen. 
Did you say 15? 11. 11 gets it. Okay, 11 times in the whole Bible. That's all the Bible speaks of virtue. It's not a whole lot, is it? Okay, someone, maybe someone should give him a candy bar or something later on for getting it right. Yeah. Um, 11 times the Bible speaks of virtue. And when the Bible speaks of virtue, it speaks of it, um, if you can think of this, let's say four of them are over here, and they're going to be the times that virtue gets mentioned in the Old Testament. That leaves how many times does it get mentioned in the New Testament? 11 minus 4 is 7, yeah? So four times it's going to get mentioned here in the New Testament. You say, I thought 7, yeah? Let's put 4 over there. And let's put three in the middle. They're New Testament as well, but they're special and they appear in this order. Four times over there, it's mentioned in the Old Testament. Four times there in the New Testament. And then three times also in the New Testament in the middle. And here's what they are. Who wants to guess what the four instances of virtue in the Old Testament, what do all four instances of virtue in the Old Testament have in common? Women. Every time the Bible in the Old Testament speaks of virtue, it's speaking of a virtuous woman. All four times. The last four times in the New Testament that virtue gets mentioned, it's referring to the virtue of a man. So we'll call those the bookends, and then in between there are three instances of virtue, and what do those three have in common? Yeah, all three of those are referring to the virtue of the Lord Jesus Christ. So the Bible speaks of the virtue of a woman first, the virtue of a man over there, and the virtue of Jesus in between. Uh, And can I say this, whilst this is not the message this morning, but if you take Jesus out of everything, you'll no longer be able to tell the difference between men and women. That's what's wrong with the world today. When they can't tell the difference between men and women, it's because they didn't put Jesus in the mix. You'll figure it out when you've got Jesus in there and you'll know that men are men and women are women and they're separate and they're different and I'm very very thankful for that I am so thankful I am so thankful that I cannot think of a single thing about my wife that I would say it's masculine oh she's manly no she's not she's feminine from head to toe and I'm glad that my wife is feminine and I hope that she's glad that I'm masculine in spite of the fact that it means I'm prone to being messy and difficult to live with and all of those other masculine traits. Um, if you want to study, ladies, if you want to study what it means to be a virtuous woman, uh, a virtuous woman is a crown to her husband. There is only one person in the whole Bible. There is only one person in the whole Bible other than the Lord Jesus Christ, who's named as being virtuous. It's none of these four times it gets used to describe a man. It doesn't mention any of the men by name. But out of the virtuous women of the Old Testament, Proverbs speaks generically of the virtuous woman, but there is a woman who is named as being virtuous. Does anyone know which woman that is? Ruth. All the people of the city doth know that thou art a virtuous woman. So if you want to know what it's like to be a virtuous woman, study Ruth and the Bible will teach you everything you need to know about being a virtuous woman. So in between the virtuous man and the virtuous woman, there's the references to the Lord Jesus Christ. They're in Mark 5.30, Luke 6.19 and Luke 8 verse 46. And every time the word virtue is used in connection with the Lord Jesus Christ, 
uh, it, it's a different root word from the Greek language. It's a different root word that gets translated as virtue in the English than when it speaks of the virtue of a man. How many of you are okay with that? You're okay with saying that Jesus Christ is different than us because he is God manifest in the flesh. Yes, he was a man. He was born of the seed of the woman, made of the woman, made under the law, as the Bible says, but he was also God manifest in the flesh. So it should be no great surprise that God would use a different word to describe his virtue as being different from ours. And that word that's used there and translated as virtue, when it speaks of Jesus, it's a word dynamis, from which we get the word dynamic and the word dynamite. Uh, And that is because the Lord Jesus Christ is not just full of the power of God, he was the power of God. And if we want to have powerful lives, then he must increase and we must decrease. And if we're full of ourselves, we won't be very powerful. Matter of fact, a person who's full of themselves, do you know what the world calls them nowadays? They don't call them virtuous, interestingly. They call them virtue signalers. How many of you have heard that term? What's a virtue signaler? It's someone full of themselves and they're not shy of telling you how good they are. But that's not virtuous. You get full of the Lord Jesus Christ and you will have that dynamic kind of power of him. Every time, every time that virtue is, the Bible speaks about the Lord Jesus Christ and virtue, what happens? It's a most fascinating thing. Does Jesus touch a person or does a person touch him? Yeah, all three times that the Bible speaks of the Lord Jesus Christ of having virtue, it says that someone touched him. And what did he say? He said, who touched me? For he perceived that what? Virtue was gone out of him. What I want to present to you this morning is that there are two distinct and different types of virtue You could call it one sort of like the basic level of virtue. It's good, but then there is an advanced level of virtue, which is even better. And the good level of virtue is the level of virtue when you are consciously, actively trying to help people. How many of you say, I would like to consciously, actively try and help people? That's good. That's right. It's something that we ought to do. If you read Proverbs chapter 31... where it talks about who can find a virtuous woman, her price is far above rubies, and it says that she seeketh this, and she worketh willingly with her hands, and she's diligent, and she, she riseth up early and takes care of the needs of her household, right? She knows she's doing it. It's an active, it's an intentional thing. But the level of virtue of the Lord Jesus Christ, he is so virtuous that when he doesn't even try, instead of him having to go and help people, people come to him for help. And that is something to aim for. That is something that you really want to have in your life where people, how many of you say, oh, oh, I want that. I want everyone to bring their problems to me. How many of you, oh yeah, that's me. I love that. But none of us really want that. It's not instinctive, it's not natural for us to desire, bring all of your burdens, bring all of your cares, bring all of your problems to me, 
because I just want to hear about them. That's not how we naturally are. But it's how Jesus naturally was. And when people come to him and touch him and virtue goes out of him. The weaker form of virtue is the external and obvious. The stronger form of virtue is the one where we heal people and meet people's needs without even trying. You know what the Bible says? It says that iron sharpeneth iron. If you are a truly virtuous Christian, it will tend to rub off on people. David Gibbs said it like this. David Gibbs, the Christian law, uh, uh, from the Christian Law Association, he said that there are hope putter-inners and hope sucker-outers. Don't be a hope sucker-outer to people. Be a hope putter-inner without even knowing it, without even trying to do it, without even necessarily realizing. But you'll know it when it's happened. Anyone who's been a preacher knows about this. Anyone who's been a pastor knows about this. Anyone that's been a missionary, uh, an evangelist knows about this. Probably most good Sunday school teachers know about this. And I'll throw something else in there. Uh, A lot of people who have worked in the world of healthcare, not even necessarily dealing with spiritual things, but a lot of people who have worked in the world of healthcare will understand that every day in the world of healthcare is busy, right? Let's pick on Christy. Is it always busy? And you're a MRI technician. Do you heal people? Not really. You, I mean, you take photographs. It's her job to reveal the problem, not to fix it. Right. And on a really busy day, what would be a crazy busy day? How many patients? Eighteen to twenty. That's interesting because Joe does half that many. I'm just teasing, they do a very similar job. Uh, 18 to 20 patients. And, and I'm going to guess without knowing, but I'm going to guess that some days you'll probably see 18 to 20 patients and you'll come home and you'll just be everything's fine and good. And some days you'll see five or six patients and you'll come home exhausted. And you know what that can be? That can be not, I took an MRI. That in situations like that could be, I said something to a patient And without realizing what I said, I gave them the words of encouragement that they needed to help them on. That can be the virtue. And and you come home after that day of seeing five or six patients. You spoke to all of them. You said to one of them, don't worry, everything's going to be okay. And you feel absolutely, utterly drained. Because virtue went out of you without realizing Now you might say, oh that's airy-fairy, pie-in-the-sky, hypothetical, and I'm going to say it's biblical reality and I'm going to prove it to you in one verse and then we're going to close. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. The Apostle Paul. Many people would say that Paul was the greatest Christian who ever lived. Did I say 1 Corinthians chapter 12? That's because I meant 2 Corinthians chapter 12. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. And I want you to see virtue. I want you to see the, uh, the, uh, 
the standard form of virtue, the external virtue, the obvious virtue, the one where you're actively trying to help people, and then see the higher level of virtue where you didn't even know that it happened, you didn't even know you did it, you didn't even know you were a help to someone. I want you to see it play out in one verse. 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 15. It says, And I will very gladly spend and be spent for you, though the more abundantly I love you, the less I be loved. Let's get someone young here this morning. We'll go for someone under, let's say under 21 years old. Someone 21 years old or or younger. Paul says, and I will very gladly spend. Is that the external and obvious or is that the internal and hidden? Notice what he said. I will spend. I'm doing this. I know I'm doing it. But then what does he say? And be spent. You know what he's basically saying? I'm being spent. Someone's in my billfold and I didn't even know they were there. They're not taking his money. They're taking his energy. They're taking of his spirit. He's becoming exhausted. He's not even trying to do it. He said, I'm being spent. You are spending me. Now, sometimes I will spend. Sometimes I do it. I'll gladly do it. And and I want you to know that, notice that true virtue, true virtue as a Christian will do it. How? Gladly. Don't ever resent Christian, don't ever resent the opportunity to help somebody. Do it gladly. And don't ever resent the days where you go home absolutely, utterly exhausted and no one thanked you for what you did. As far as you know, you didn't make a difference. All you know is, I am tapped out. Quite possibly because you helped someone and you didn't know it. Don't resent the exhaustion that comes from being spent. That's where virtue is at. And there's a lot of other things that we're going to cover this evening. But let's just start with that one this morning, virtue. I believe if you have virtue as a Christian, like Second Peter said, ye shall never fall. 